because I believe that we are at a climactic point in Paul's letter to the Galatians, I'm going to read from three separate passages in Galatians before we pray for God's blessing upon preaching of the word. Galatians 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 5, verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let us pray. Our God, our Father, you truly are our only strength and shield. To you alone may our spirits yield. To you alone may our worship be given. But you do say those who would worship would worship in spirit and truth. We add, ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word by giving us the understanding of your word that we may truly worship you in spirit and in truth as it is in Christ. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. Many people, including many Christians, have a really hard time with this passage. And I'm not talking about the Greek. I am talking about what you read in your English Bibles. We live in a world that is preaching and teaching us, really, to not listen to Paul. In fact, we're taught that Wow, this is, this is too strong a language for the church, and this is not something that we ought to abide by. We're in a society where the only thing we are not to be tolerant of 
is intolerance. We're in a society, as one author puts it, where we, we don't have problems anymore. We have issues. We're, we're told that, we, he says, we're, we're to be open-minded about all things. And he said, some people have had their minds open for so long, their brains are falling out. Even for Christians, we, we don't think about what the scriptures are saying. Even some of the commentaries that I read is, okay, all right, we, we, we kind of, this is kind of a, a parenthesis. This is Paul just blowing off some steam. Or, or as one author called it, here are Paul's quote-unquote snorts of indignation. But, but I hope that over the weeks you have, you have come to, to understand. Uh, as one of my, our brothers came up to me last week and reminded me that when Paul says, let them be a curse, he is not just saying, I hope they go away. He is saying, go to hell. Paul's language is strong here. Paul's language is meant to show that what is at stake is not simply whether they feel good or whether they have self-esteem or, or whether they are able to deal with their issues. It's their eternal salvation that Paul is concerned about. There are those who say that Paul would, would be uh, right at home in 21st century America because he was such a sports fan. He, he uses terminology in his writings uh, about the Olympic Games, or, or here probably uh, particularly um, it's it said that Paul may have gone to Corinth when he preached the gospel there the first time. He may, his, his visit may have been timed to correspond with, with what has been known as the Isthmian Games. Corinth was in, on the Isthmus of Greek, where, uh, Greece, where it's very easy to get there by boat and by land and a crossroads of, of commerce and travel. And by this time in the early 50s AD, the Isthmian Games were, were held every two years. And they had all kinds of, of sports and recreational things for which they were, were given the, the wreath, the crown of celery leaves to put on their head as, as the victors. And Paul mentions some of these things in his writings. Um, he, he doesn't, unfortunately, mention one of those that in, in my reading uh, was apparently a very popular event that the Olymp International Olympic Committee ought to look into, uh, they had women's war chariots. Um, I mean, we thought we were progressive by having women in NASCAR. I mean, think about this. But Paul mentions these things. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. His focus or his idea is on the Christians as we go through our life, that we ought to have this kind of mindset, this idea of training and, and uh, protecting or, or fashioning our bodies. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. He doesn't do shadow boxing. He says, I buffet my body and make it my slave, as training as you would train for an Olympic event. In 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, an athlete does, uh, does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. There were things that Paul was able to take from, from that culture and that time that we would understand even today, that it's the athlete who competes according to the rules who wins the prize. 
And so he says to them, in this light of what I think is a very serious and a very um, emotional passage for Paul, he says, you were running well. You were on a good course. We, we read that passage in Galatians 3. You know, he who called you, Galatians 1, and what did he do in Galatians 3? He, he gave you the Spirit. He, he, he did and performed miracles among you, and, and you had this good start. You were, you were walking by hearing with faith and not by the flesh. Why did you depart from that good course? Who, specifically he says, who hindered you? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? But this also is an illustration from the games, from running. The, apparently the running races at those times were, were not like tomorrow's Boston Marathon where they start in Hopkinton and they run a more or less direct route, you know, past Wellesley College and through, the, you know, up the, the, the Heartbreak Hill of Chestnut Hill and then past good old Fenway Park and down into the streets of central Boston. It's from point to point, but in the Isthmian games, they went from to the pole and back again. They went to a single point and turned around and raced back. And what Paul is, is looking at here, his imagery here, is who hindered you? Who cut in on you? Because apparently it was a tactic in those days, yes, perhaps rules against elbowing one another, Okay, or tripping, but as they rounded the pole, it was an opportunity to interfere, to set up an obstacle for your opponent. He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who got in your way? Who tried to get you off of this good course? And what was the purpose of that cutting in, that cutting off, preventing the Galatians from obeying the truth? And I believe that he, he uses that as, as a simple word for the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul is about here. Who, who has hindered you from obeying the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He's speaking of obedience to the truth, not just the knowledge of who Christ is or when he came. There, there is this combination of, of belief and behavior that, that, that Paul is not letting us, uh, you know, again, as I use that phrase, what God has joined together, do not put us under. There is belief and behavior. If you think Galatians is only about justification, I think you're mistaken. It's justification and sanctification. He, he, again, he talks in chapter 3 about, you know, you have received Christ by hearing with faith. Are you now... Are you going on in your Christian life by works of the flesh? He's saying they're, they're hindering you from obeying the truth of the gospel. Or as Timothy George says about this obedience to the truth, there is an unbreakable bond of theological integrity and spiritual vitality. Or John Stott, our creed is expressed in our conduct, our conduct is derived from our creed. They are not separable. 
Or as Philip Ryken says, I think in a pithy statement, uh, talking about not merely a belief system, not merely a moral code, as many of us tend to think of Christianity, he says it is, quote, a theology come to life. For Paul, this is life and death. This is living the life and truth. Truth does not just oppose, as we see the beginnings of it here, false teaching. It opposes, as we see here, any modification, any addition to the truth, any perversion of that truth, including traditions of men. Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth of the gospel? And who are these? He names them elsewhere as troublemakers. But look at the list of things that he says about them. In verse 8, this persuasion, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. He says it's such persuasion. And why does he say that? But he connects this word and the, the, the grammarians call them cognates. They are words that have uh, different variations on that basic definition of the word. In verse 7, the, the purpose of the cutting in was to get them to not obey that persuasion that had brought them the gospel. Presumably his teaching and his, how God used him in preaching the word to them. And now he is looking at the agitators, those who have come into Galatia, and he's saying, their persuasion, their preaching, such persuasion is not of the, from the one who called you. The Galatians have come to obey the truth by the persuasion of his preaching. Now there is a different persuasion. And he is saying to them, do not obey anyone who causes you to disobey the truth of the gospel. Because that sort of persuasion is not from God. In chapter 1, we again we read... I am so amazed that you have so quickly abandoned him who called you. It is the calling of God, not the persuasion of God. It's opposed to the persuasion of men. The theologians call it the effective call. It is that call to man's conscience. It is, as my theology professor called it, moral suasion, but it is all of God. It is God's doing. John Eady says, man's persuasion is an art and an argument using human principles. And I believe perhaps that where we listened to Paul in Acts chapter 17 this morning, when he was trying to explain to them on Mars Hill, Listen again to these words. He says, if we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. What he's saying is this calling is of God, but their persuasion, their preaching is of the art and an image created by the art and thought of human mind. But God's calling is a summons where God calls us to life 
and to truth as it is found in Christ. And so Paul says of them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You probably understand better than I do. The only loaf of bread I ever baked could be used to build a house. It was like a brick. Okay? Yeast was used to ferment the bread. You put the yeast in and it interacts and it causes the bread to rise. But what Paul is referring to here is the leaven. It's a little lump. And, and my mom used to do this with sourdough bread. You make the, the sponge, you make the dough, but then you take some of that fermenting dough and you, you take that lump aside and you use that as your starter for the next batch of dough. And what he's saying is that little lump, that little starter thing can start something big. It's just a truism. Remember in scripture, remember your hermeneutics class with Chuck? You know, leaven is, sometimes it's evil and sometimes it's, it's neutral and sometimes it's good. And all Paul is saying is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But what does he have in mind here? How does it work its way through the whole lump of dough? Well, it's possible, and many commentators take it this way, that it could refer to the teaching, the specific words of the agitators, that, that their teaching works its way through the congregation. And certainly we need to watch out for that. Certainly we need to, to be aware of, of, of the truth. But I think we have to look at the context. He's al already asked, who hindered you? And the context is who? The agitators themselves. It takes only one wrong person to infiltrate and to infect you with his virus of his wrong teaching. Yes, he is not teaching the truth. And yet, there can be those who perhaps very slyly, very unobtrusively at first, are like that little lump that can infect the whole lump. But what does Paul say of them? Does he say, you know, watch out for him, just kind of push him to the side, no. He says, but the one who is disturbing you, verse 10, shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He doesn't name the agitators. He, he doesn't call out any one individual or group. And I think that's on purpose, that they ought to know, they ought to be able to look and say, you know who they are. You, they have come among you. You know the individuals who fit this profile. They may be prominent or not. They may be likable or not. They be, may be well known to you or not. They may be great of stature or a wee little man, but you know who they are. And they are those who mentally disturb you, he says, mentally distress you by their false teaching. And again, Paul's language is not mamby-pamby here. They will pay the penalty. I, I don't believe there's any way to slice it than to say to pay the penalty refers to the day of judgment <coughs> when God will judge the thoughts and teachings of men. 
And we can understand the writer of Hebrews and we can understand Peter when he says, those who teach the word will be more strictly judged. We've seen that in here. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which I have preached to you that you have received, let him be accursed. And then we come to that passage that many would excise and cut out of their Bible in verse 12, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. I struggled and struggled and struggled with how, how to look at this. And one of the commentators reminded me of the, the master, I think, of the put-down in the English language, Winston Churchill. He had many encounters with uh, Lady Astor, but probably the most famous of the encounters, Lady Astor says to him, Winston, if you were my husband, I should put arsenic in your tea. And Churchill replied, Madam, if I were your husband, I should drink it. <laughs> but there are put-downs in the scriptures, are they not? There are put-downs that have a purpose. What did Peter say to Simon Magus when Simon Magus wanted to buy the influence and authority and power of the Holy Spirit? May your silver perish with you. May you die. What do we think of Jesus? Precious Lord, meek and lowly, what does he say to the scribes and Pharisees? You whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside. You've cleaned yourself up. You've made yourself acceptable to society. But inside, mm -mm, we'll open it up and what we'll find is dead men's bones. Or the psalm that I read for the opening. What does it say of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord of God's right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. Or if we read the psalm previous to that, Psalm 109, listen to David. Appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. That, that, that's, that's not just a snort of indignation. He's standing on the truth of the scripture and a holy God who is the judge of all the earth. And I guess what I want to try to say here is, is the, many of the commentators would, would, would have us um, somehow make an excuse for Paul's remarks. Perhaps, perhaps Paul is speaking when he speaks of these, the mutilation of Deuteronomy 23, where it says, no one who is emasculated may enter the assembly of Jehovah. Maybe it's just a cry. Or maybe he says, you know, may they cut themselves off from having fellowship with you. May they be deprived of the opportunity of persuading you. These are cutting remarks, and yes, that is a pun. 
But I say it to say this, another pun, but it's what the point I would like to make here. Some of your scriptures take those paths. That he's talking about excommunication, that he's talking about, you know, I wish they would just go away. I wish they would just remove themselves. They have some language like that. But please, please, please don't emasculate the scriptures. Paul says, I would that they would not only circumcise them, but they would even castrate themselves. Perhaps like the pagan priests who did that because they think it would appease their gods. But I think it may be more direct. They want to cut, make a little cut on the foreskin of their male member. I wish the knife would slip. And they would cut the thing off. Why? Because Paul is saying to us, these are troublemakers who hinder you from following the truth of the gospel. These are people who need to be taken out of your fellowship, certainly. But God will deal with them in a mighty way for what they have done and what they have preached. Beware, he says to the Philippians, beware of false circumcision. Literally, beware of the mutilation of the flesh. They want you to follow the way of the flesh, but you have made a good start by following the way of faith. How will you react to the obstacle that they have thrown in your path? How will you keep running? And again, Paul uses this, this word in verse 11 that we've already talked about, this idea for persuasion. And it, it, I was not able to get to the Greek, but I, I do am thankful for the book that I have by Douglas Moo. Perhaps what Paul could say is this, if we use the English, some have cut in on you to persuade you to not obey the truth of the gospel. Such persuasion is not from God, but... I'm persuaded that you will think no other way than I am thinking. I am confident, I trust that you will come to the same conclusion that I have come to, that you will take no other view. Perhaps it's like Philippians 2, where Paul says, you know, have this mind among yourselves in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will adopt this mindset. But again, I think in the context when he says, I am confident toward you in the Lord, I am confident that you will take no other view of the agitators than the one I have just taken that they have come in among you to hinder you. They have come in among you to stop you from following by faith and going on by faith, but they want to derail you and take you down a different path. He says, I am convinced, I trust, but why? Again, read the language in verse 11. Uh, sorry, verse 10, I have confidence in you or toward you in the Lord. And that's the key. My confidence is toward you as believers. You are too well grounded in the Lord, in Christ. 
you will recognize these false teachers. Remember the grace by, by which you came to Christ. Remember, as one uh, author says, remember how you were converted. Don't forget that. Don't forget that you came to Christ by faith. Do you want to move on by works of the law? I am convinced, I trust your values, your ability to figure this out, to look at this situation in the right way. Because I'm confident, not you, but in the Lord. His promise to his people. Again, as one of our members said to me last week, I, 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 I know these things and I understand these things. And, and there is a time when, when I am fearful in my salvation. But then I remember the words of the Lord Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hands. And so Paul can say, as he does to the Corinthians, and he says, I think here to the Galatians, run. Keep running in the right way. Run in such a way that you may win. Further in 1 Corinthians 9, and I understand it's a slightly different context, but he says those athletes who keep training their bodies and buffeting themselves to box or, or to run or to drive the chariots, they do so for a perishable wreath but we for an imperishable. <clears throat> Folks, keep running, but you're not running for a headband made of wilted celery. <laughs> you're running for the crown of righteousness. You're running for that great day <clears throat> when we'll be before the Lord and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And where will we enter? We will enter, and this is the amazing part of that verse to me, we will enter into the joy of the Master. Yes, we'll be joyful, but we'll enter into His joy. Keep running. Stay the course. And Paul also tells us, keep <coughs> proclaiming. Keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Verse 11, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Again, it's really hard to understand, and the word that kind of jolts us in this verse is still. If I still preach circumcision, and I'm, I'm thinking, I, I don't read in my scripture that Paul was preaching circumcision Perhaps he did because he was of the circumcision party when he, before his Damascus Road experience. Perhaps he did then. But I believe what we read here is a false accusation that, that Paul has been falsely accused by the agitators, even to the point where they may be telling the Galatians, Paul, you know, Paul makes a lot of noise, but Paul's really on our side. Paul, Paul's not against circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. I mean, he's a Jew. Why, why would he do that? And I think Paul is, is just simply using logic here. If I'm, being, uh, if I'm being persecuted, that proves that I am not in any way still or before or after preaching circumcision. You, you see, I wouldn't be in this hot water. 
I, I wouldn't have people doing these things and reproaches on me for what I am, I am saying. If I am insisting on circumcision, then what has been removed is not me kind of getting out of hot water, but what's been removed is the scandal of the cross. He says even further, it has been abolished. It's been removed. And this word, you've heard of it, the word scandalon. It means a snare or a trap. Literally, it is the bait stick. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty old, but we had the old cardboard boxes and we'd put them in the backyard because we could tell there had been bunnies eating the, the, you know, my mom's garden. And we put the box out there with the stick, the scandal on, and it would be attached with a string to the bait, something in there for the animal to eat. And I'd wake up in the morning and run to the backyard to see what was in the box, and it was usually my cat. <laughs> <laughs> But Paul is saying there's a, there's a snare, there's a trap that, that consists of some object, some obstacle that causes people to get angry, that causes people to be opposed to some idea. And there are many who take it that he says, you know, the scandal on, we, we, we read in Corinthians and we read in Isaiah you know, we read about the Messiah. A beautiful passage in Isaiah 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the offense, perhaps he means, like Deuteronomy 21, the, the Jews understood that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And is there anything more a an anathema or a, a just a, an oxymoron exploded to the Jew than a crucified Messiah. One who is accursed by God, and yet that, that's not my Messiah. And yes, it is true. And even the Romans, to them, crucifixion was an abomination. What a low, I mean, talking about the Romans, what a low point of life, crucifixion. But again, let's stay in our context. The offense of the cross, I think, may be viewed in a different way. Paul has just, I mean, mightily attacked what's been called one of the cardinal defining rituals of the Jewish faith, has he not? Circumcision. Circumcision standing for doing of the law, of man doing what he thinks he needs to do to make himself right before God. And if circumcision stands for the doing of the law as a way of justification, then it must be opposed or see as scandal Christ and him crucified. Because instead of being the way of man, the cross is all and nothing but the law or, or, of grace and truth. It is God's way, not man's. It is God's idea, not man's. The offense of the cross may be that humans don't want to give up anything in their efforts which they deem necessary to secure 
their right standing before God. It's either circumcision or the cross. It can't be both. Remember, we sing the hymn sometimes, and it is true. We do come to God just as I am. We don't come to God just as I want. Am I ashamed of the truth of the gospel? Am I ashamed to stand with Paul and, and declare that these things, yes, may be offensive, but it is the scandal of the cross? Am I intimidated by the critic or the skeptic? Am I tempted to stray from the course by my relatives who think, you know, that's fine for you, whatever floats your boat. There are things in the Christian life, yes, we, we do not know. And, and Christians, I think we, we get it backwards. I don't know if it's pre, middle, post, ah, millennium. I, I don't know, and I probably never will know until that great day, and we'll learn together. And I don't know that that one is worth fighting for, but there are things in terms of our morality and things in terms of the cross of Christ that are a scandal to other people. But I have to remember, the scandal is not with me. It's with the cross. And I can't stop preaching the truth or proclaiming the truth of the cross because I'm a little afraid of what people may think. I think it all comes down to talking about the sufficiency of Christ and the cross. Was it enough to secure your salvation, or do I need to do more? Did God not do it sufficiently for me to know, and now I have to add? Am I ashamed of the truth of the gospel? Do I run from a fight? Or in the words of Churchill, have you enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. If we have enemies because we're Christians, it's because we stood up for the scandal of the cross. In Jude 3, Jude writes, he says, I write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered all, once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly. That's not just to stand by and say, well, you know, I believe this. It's okay for you to believe that. We contend earnestly for the truth of the gospel. Remember again, you are not the scandal. The cross is. And the cross is the focus, not you. We don't have to study all of the counterfeits. We do have to recognize falsehood as opposed to the truth. But when we were in Washington, D.C., 20-something years ago, we went to one of the mints where they're printing, you know, 20 sheets a minute, printing out $20 bills, 8 by 4, 32 of them, you know, stacks and stacks. And there were people standing by the end of the line where those are being printed. They're coming, coming, coming. And we asked the tour guide, you know, what, what are those people looking at? Because every now and then they reach in there and they take a sheet out and they put it in the trash. 
What are they looking for? And they said, they are so trained to understand the real thing that they can spot the counterfeit and false immediately. And that's our job. We don't have to look at every cult and every false teaching. Yeah, we, we do. We, we kind of have to know what's out there. And, and we go to a class like Chuck's and we, we, we talk about what other religions think and do. But what do we focus on? What is our primary purpose? It's on the truth of the gospel. Because if we know the truth of the gospel, we will spot not only the counterfeit, but we'll spot the false teacher as well. Because remember, they're Satan's minions, and they do masquerade as an angel of light. Stay the course. Keep running. Keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And then we may stand. We may stand with the Apostle Paul at that great day and proclaim as he did to Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy, and we pray for your grace, that you would teach us, that you would help us, you would guide us into all the truth, and Father, that we would be strengthened with the might and power of the Holy Spirit, that we may run in the way of the truth, that we may not be hindered, that we may not let these obstacles Take us out of the mission and the purpose that you have for us, but that we would glorify you and proclaim you and give you all glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Would you please rise for the benediction? Another image taken from the arena of the Olympics. The writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.